John 15, verses 26 and 27. And if you could stand for the reading of God's word. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we need your help. We confess our weakness, our, uh, our frailty. So, Lord, we, we claim your promise that you have sent to us one who will come alongside us to help us. And we, we, we ask for his ministry here that we, this morning, that the Holy Spirit would fill this place, that he would fill our hearts, that we would sense his presence, and that his presence would, uh, would make a difference here in this place this morning. Lord, um, honor and glorify yourself through your word. Honor and glorify your son through your word, and may your spirit do his work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed um, we're only looking at two verses this morning, as Brandon, uh, it was, it was <laughs> it's a little jarringly short um, uh, for, uh, based on what we're used to, um, to have a passage that is this short. Uh, for me, it's been uh, luxurious in a way to have the time to stop and to, and to not just verse by verse, not just phrase by phrase, but kind of word by word, working my way through just a couple of, of verses of, of John's account of um, Scholars uh, are divided a little bit about why these verses appear where they are. Um, some of them see them a little, bit, a little bit out of place, as if they were perhaps inserted later. That Jesus didn't really say this in the flow of what he was saying. If, if, you, were, if you were here with us, with us last week, well, even, even if you weren't, in the passage that comes before this, Jesus is telling his disciples to expect that as he has been hated, they will also be hated. And if, if you look just a little bit forward into the beginning of chapter 16, he picks up on that theme. Jesus continues to talk about the persecution that his disciples are going to face because they are his disciples. And right in the middle of this, we get these two verses. And they do seem a little bit, uh, at least at first reading, a little bit out of place. But I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I think they are completely in place. They are there for a purpose. They're, they're there to give us maybe just a pause and if you think back, if you go back even to the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus has been, he's been laying a lot of heavy stuff, if you will, on his disciples. Uh, he started in and they are the branches, and if they're telling them that him to abide in him, that he is the vine, they are the branches, and if they don't abide in him, they are not going to be able to bear fruit. That's, 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 that's heavy, at least it is to me. To, to, to consider that my fruitfulness is, 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 is bound up in my abiding in him. And then he, he tells his disciples in the next section, this uh, love sandwich that Pastor David gave us a couple of weeks ago, that we are to love one another. That one of the requirements of discipleship is that we would love one another. I mean, that sounds bright and cheery on its surface, but to me that's also pretty heavy. 
because I'm not very good at that. I don't know about you. You know, loving other people is not, not necessarily my main forte. I love myself, but loving others, that's, that's heavy. Not something that I'm able to do, at least not in the way Jesus requires. Not something I can do by myself. And then this hate sandwich we saw last week from Pastor Chris. I mean, that just, you know, just piling on. Jesus has just been piling on all of these, these, not these requirements. And then this, this idea that, you know, we're, just as he has been hated, just as he has been rejected, just as he has been cast aside, we should expect the same thing as disciples. It's just, you can almost, you can almost sense the disciples saying, help. I mean, I can, you know, maybe, you know, singing the first few lines of a Beatles song. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, I, you know, I need someone. Help! And this little break, these two verses, Jesus is saying, don't worry. I have a helper for you. He's already talked about the helper before. We've seen this, there are two other passages before, two other uh, areas uh, back in chapter 14, where Jesus has told his disciples, he's leaving, but he's sending a helper to take his place. Uh, we talked about this uh, a, a few weeks ago. This, this helper is, is the paraclete. He is the one who comes alongside to help. And Jesus, again, makes that promise. Um, so we see two witnesses. This, this, these two verses are all about bearing witness. We've seen this theme throughout the book of, uh, of John, John's gospel. We've seen this theme of bearing witness, all these different, different things that Jesus has brought forth, his, his works and his words that have borne witness. And now we see the witness. This is, uh, there are many examples, but um, looking at John chapter 5, if you have your Bible and you want to flip back there, we're in John chapter 15 at the end of 15. But in chapter 5, there's this almost a laundry list that Jesus presents of witnesses. Uh, this, is, uh, this is what uh, Jesus says and is recorded by John. If I alone bear witness about my... I'm picking up in verse 31, by the way, of chapter 5. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here, just in this brief passage, we see several different witnesses. He talks about the witness of, of John the Baptist. He talks about the witness of the works that the Father has given him to do. He talks about the witness of the Father himself. He talks about the witness of the Word, the witness of the Scriptures. All of those are witnesses that we see not only here mentioned in chapter 5, but, but throughout John's Gospel. And now here at the end of chapter 15, we see two more witnesses, two more testimonies. Witnesses to Jesus. 
just as a note, there are, uh, I counted them up, I, th I think there are about 27 instances where, the, where testimonies to Christ are mentioned in this gospel, using this word, witness, bearing witness, this, this verb. So, Jesus has a, a couple of witnesses, further witnesses that he wants to present. I'm calling them the divine witness and the disciples' witness. And he begins with this word, with this word, but. I think this, this however, this even though I have said, now I am now going to say, I think that's encapsulated in this, in this one little word, this however. As I said, I think he is given the weight of all that he has just told his disciples, given that the, the weightiness of what he has laid on them, he says, but... Just wait. I, ha I have a solution for, for, the, for the problem that you're sensing. This, this idea, which I, I think is probably it, not only in his disciples then, but in us today. This idea that we are unable. We're, we, are, we are not able to do what Jesus has called us to do. To abide in him. To love others as he has loved us. To, to bear up under the, the hate that is going to be sent our way. I think Jesus knows that. And he says, even I've told you all this, but I have now some, some good news for you. There is a helper that is coming. This is, again, as I mentioned, the third paraclete promise. We saw it in verse, uh, verses, 14, uh, verses 16 and verses 26 of chapter 4. Old song reference, hang on, help is on its way. The Spirit will be there as fast as He can. I, I'm paraphrasing the, the, the tune, but you know what I mean. Or maybe you don't. Maybe it's an archaic song that you're not familiar with. Thanks for the one. Yeah, that was from last week. There was a song that, for those of you who aren't, aren't in on the joke, D David mentioned a song a couple of weeks ago that was uh, older, and then last week Pastor Chris um, characterized that as an archaic song. It was a song that came out when I was a young person, so <clears throat> I just was just saying. Anyway, moving on. Yes, hang on, help is on his way. And then he says this, and, I, and, I, and I, I, this just came, this, this struck me as I was reading these two verses. Last week, Pastor Chris mentioned that there are, I believe, seven conditionals in this hate sandwich between um, verses uh, 18 and 25. Seven different conditional statements, seven different if statements. And it struck me that in these two verses, there are no conditions. There are only absolutes. The first one is this next word, when. But when the Helper comes. You see, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the paraclete, the, com the, one, uh, the, the coming of the one who is going to come alongside to help, it's a, it's a sure thing. We don't, have to, we don't have to wonder if maybe this is a promise that's going to come true. Jesus is saying... Not if the helper comes, but when the helper comes. There are other absolutes here. I counted four absolutes, by the way. He says, I will send you. He will bear, he will bear witness, and you will bear witness. No ifs, ands, and I guess just the one but in this passage. All absolutes. He will be sending the Holy Spirit. 
It's interesting to me. It says that, um, he says, the Holy Spirit will come whom I will send to you from the Father. We've, we've seen various versions of this. As Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he has said that the Father is going to send him. He said that the Father will send him in my name. And now he's saying that he is going to send the, the Holy Spirit, the, the helper from the Father, this spirit of truth as he calls him. It, it, it seems as if the, the sender of the Holy Spirit is sort of interchangeable. In one instance, it's the Father. In one instance, it's the Son. And it could be either. And, and it, perhaps it's, it's the Father sending the, the, the Spirit in the name of Jesus. I think it's just a reminder of the equality of Father and Son within the Godhead. It doesn't matter if the Father is sending the Spirit or if the Son is sending the Spirit. It, they're coming from the same source. And then there's this word. It says, when the Holy Spirit, when the, when the Helper comes, whom I will, I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. Who proceeds from the Father. Uh, it's hard to think of a word that has gotten more traction throughout church history than this word proceeds. Has, has perhaps raised more debate than this word proceeds. Uh, some scholars would see it simply as a, a synonym. That, that what Jesus is saying here is simply a parallel. He's saying, I am going to send him. He proceeds from the Father. They, they mean the same thing. That just as, the, as I am sending him, as the Father is sending the Holy Spirit, this proceeds is just another way of saying that he is sent. It, it's seen as, as, as a reference to the Holy Spirit's historical mission. That he's coming, and as, we'll, as we see as the, as, the, as the church age dawns at the beginning of Acts, that the Holy Spirit does come. And so some scholars see it that way. I think it means a little more than that. Um, I think uh, I'm, I'm going to give you some examples that, uh, of how this word has, has um, impacted the, uh, the creeds, confessions, and catechisms, which is the title of this book, throughout church history. How the, the, the great thinkers in church history have, have taken this word and used it uh, in, ver in these various ways. Um, we'll start with the Nicene Creed. Um, the creed talks about God and Jesus, the things we believe about the Father and the Son. And then it says this, And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who, the direct reference to our text here this morning in John 15, 26. And then this, this is the, uh, the, Ath the, <clears throat> the Athanasian Creed. Um, I'm just going to start back a little bit talking again about the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor, nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And he goes on to affirm the, the, the oneness of the Trinity. There is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this Trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. 
And this, this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And this is from the London Baptist Confession. In this divine and infinite being, speaking of God, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son. All infinite, without beginning, therefore, but one God. And then this, finally, one more example. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It says, this is question number 10. What are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? This is the answer. It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So I, uh, I would lean with, uh, with, with these great statements of faith that when Jesus says in John 15, 26, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, that he's speaking of a deeper truth than just sort of a parallel that the, that the, that the, that the Spirit was sent. Truly, the Spirit was sent. He was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Son. But this, this proceeding has a deeper meaning. It's, it's a statement of the Holy Spirit's co-equality in the Godhead. It's a statement of the Holy Spirit's eternality within the Godhead. All of that is, is wrapped up in this, in this one word that he, that he proceeds. He is eternally proceed, just as the, the Son is eternally begotten by the Father. The Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and from the Son. So I think it has, yes, a, an historical, a, a missional meaning, but I think it also has this deeper eternal meaning that, 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 that affirms the reality of the Trinity, this, this concept that, that we hold so dear and yet can't quite grasp because it, it boggles our minds in some ways. It's, it affirms his divinity. That's why, I, that's why I called this point the divine witness. Because when Jesus speaks of the witness of the Holy Spirit, he is talking about a witness that comes from, from God himself. So he says, when the, when the helper comes, whom I will send, from, send to you from the Father, this spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness he will bear witness. And what will he bear witness about? Well, Jesus says he'll bear witness about, about me. Not me, <laughs> about Jesus. He's going to bear witness about Jesus. We've already seen in these earlier um, paraclete promises some other uh, uh, functions, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. 
He's going to he's going to be he's going to dwell with the disciples. He's going to be in the disciples. He is this spirit of truth, as he calls him, both in verse 16 of chapter 14, and again here in our text this morning. And then in verse uh, in verse 26 of chapter 14, he says that he is going to be a teacher. He is going to be one who brings things to their remembrance. So there, there, there are functions, the functions of the Holy Spirit, they're the indwelling spirit, the teaching spirit, the, the reminding spirit. But I would submit that those functions are subordinate to, or, or maybe in support of, foundational to his true one and only purpose. And what is that purpose? To bear witness about Jesus. To bear witness about Jesus. To, to bring testimony. If, if, you, if you want to put it this way, the topic, not a topic, but the topic of the Spirit's testimony is Christ. When the Spirit speaks, He speaks about Jesus. When the, when the Holy Spirit bears witness, He speaks about Jesus. When he testifies, he testifies about Jesus. He has one message. It's Christ. It's Christ crucified. It's Christ risen. It's Christ seated at the right hand of God making intercession for his, for his disciples. It's Jesus who paid the price for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. It's, it's the gospel. It's the good news of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. It's, it's, it's sort of one note when you think about it. The Spirit has one thing to say. One thing to say, and that's Jesus. He, he, he is sent by Jesus from the Father, sent by the Father in Jesus' name, however you want to look at it. He, he proceeds eternally from the Father, and His mission when He comes is to bear witness about Jesus. So that's the divine witness, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there. And again, this, this struck me. Uh, I've thought about this often. Uh, the, the, the way that God designed, the, the, the way that he, he ordained that the gospel would go forth, you know, I, I don't know if I were God, if I would done, if I would have done it this way. Maybe I would have just left it, left it at the end of verse 26. The Spirit is going to come, and when He comes, He's going to bear witness about me. You know, it just stands to reason he's going to be pretty good at it. You know, the, the, the witness that he's going to bear is going to be accurate. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be persuasive. Why didn't he just leave it that way? Why didn't the Holy Spirit just go around from person to person and personally testify to each person? I mean, it just seems so much, it just seems much, so much more efficient than the way God designed it because... Jesus continues, verse 27, and you also will bear witness about me. Well, he doesn't say about me. I think that's inferred or implied. It's implied so we can infer it. Sorry, I'm an English teacher, and I just made a mistake that my students make that I chide them about. It's implied so we can infer it, that the witness that we are going to bear is also about Jesus. 
it just, you know, we hear stories. I mean, I've heard stories about on the, on the bleeding edge of missions where, where people see visions. They've never heard from a person about Jesus, but they, but they see a vision perhaps of Jesus himself, and, th and that, that, th those visions can be instrumental to their conversion, to their coming to faith. I think in that, those instances, we're, we're seeing that it is the Holy Spirit directly testifying, the Holy Spirit directly witnessing to, to people, bearing witness about Jesus. But that is, that's few and far between. Almost all the time. The way that God has designed for the witness of Jesus to go forth is not through a direct witness from the Spirit to a man. It's from the direct witness of a man to a man, a woman to a woman, a man. You, know, you get what I'm saying. From a human being to another human being. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would have designed it that way. But Jesus, he's saying that that's what's going to happen. When the Spirit comes, He is going to bear witness, and you also are going to bear witness. And then, he, and then He gives a reason for that. He says, you are going to bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Because you have been with me from the beginning. And that, um, for me, begs a question. Clearly, as Jesus is gathered here in the upper room now, He has, he has 11 of his 12 disciples left. Judas has gone off to do his nefarious deeds. Eleven remain, and Jesus is speaking to them. He's saying to them, you, my 11 disciples, you are going to bear witness, and you're going to be able to bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And I guess that begs the question, what, what, what does that mean for us? Because I wasn't there. You weren't there. Put a pin in that for just a second. I think one thing it does mean is that what we bear witness about, what these disciples and then what disciples who have come after are able to bear witness about is, has, has grounding in, in history. It's not just sort, some sort of story that they've dreamed up. Jesus is saying, what I, when you bear witness, I want you to bear witness about what you have seen. You've been with me from the beginning. You have observed what I have done. You've, you've heard what I have said. What I want you to bear witness about is, is those things. I want you to tell other people what you heard me say. I want you to tell other people what you saw me do. Up to and including what they have not yet seen him do, but they're going to see. His death on a cross. His miraculous resurrection. Tell them about those things, too. You're going to bear witness about me because you've been with me from the beginning. To me, that just says that what we bear witness about, what they bear witness about, is grounded in an objective historical experience. It's not something that these 11 men dreamed up. They're telling what they heard. They're telling what they saw. Now, there is a specific application for those 11 men that is different for them than it was for that, different for them than it is for us. I mean, that's just, that's just objectively true. Um, D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, this specific reference to Jesus' earthly ministry shows that the disciples shows that the disciples primarily in view 
are the first eyewitnesses. So it's the disciples themselves, the ones that were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. But he goes on and says this, Only derivatively, though certainly derivatively, can this be applied to later Christians. End quote. Later Christians being you know, us. Uh, this, this word derivatively, what he's saying is, is that we do not have direct eyewitness testimony to give. We have derived eyewitness testimony to give. But I would submit to you that that makes it no less valid. I, I, I thought about this. We have four gospels, four writings from whom we call these, these, these men we call the evangelists. Well, the fact is that of those four, only two come from direct eyewitness accounts. Well, I'll put it this way. Only two of them were in the room when Jesus said this. That was, that was Matthew and John. Mark and Luke weren't in the room when Jesus said that you were going to bear witness about me. And yet we have four accounts, four accounts that we, that we equally value, that we give equal weight to. Now, even they were a little bit different. I mean, Mark got to hear directly from eyewitnesses. Luke got to hear directly from eyewitnesses. But in a sense, even their testimony was, as uh, Carson calls it, derivative. It wasn't eyewitness testimony. And I, th I think that the same is true for us. To the extent that we rely on the testimony of the Gospels to, to testify about Jesus... That our testimony is equally valid. You know, we haven't had a chance to sit down with some of the eyewitnesses like Mark and Luke did. But that doesn't mean that as we read the Gospels and we learn from the Gospels, the accounts that are, are, are expressed there, that we do not also have the opportunity as Jesus' disciples to bear witness to truth. It, it, it does have implications, doesn't it? That means to the extent that we are familiar with the Jesus that is um, expressed, made known, revealed in the Gospels, that's the extent to which our testimony about him will be true. But it's also to the extent to which the Holy Spirit, who is given to us as our teacher, who is given to us to remind us, I think those words spoken by Jesus to his Disciples there in the upper room are equally valid for us. This one who comes alongside to help, this paraclete, he is one who brings to our remembrance what we've learned about Jesus. He, he teaches us through his word what we ought to know about Jesus. And this, this design to me seems... Um, it seems a little strange, and yet it's the design that God has ordained. One, um, one commentator I read put it this way, he, he, talking about the fact that Jesus says that both the Spirit and the disciples are going to, to bear witness. He says this, The coupling of the witness of the Spirit with that of the disciples defines their reciprocal relationship. I think what he means by a reciprocal there is that they complete one another. 
Well, let me start again. The coupling of the witness of the Spirit with that of the disciples defines their reciprocal relationship. Without the testimony of the Spirit, the disciples' witness will be powerless. Without the disciples' witness, the Spirit will be restricted in his means of expression. Now, I've got to tell you, when I read that for the first time and I saw the word restricted applied to the Holy Spirit, it made me feel a little queasy. I mean, can't the Holy Spirit do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do? A person and directly testify about the truth of who Jesus is. Can't he do that? Is he, is he truly restricted? In that sense, no. And the Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. There, is, there are no restrictions on him other than what I would call a self-imposed restriction. That's what I've already talked about. He could have chosen. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from eternity past could have decided that the best way for the gospel to be sent forth would be by direct revelation to each individual person. They chose not to do it that way. They chose that our, our derivative testimony would be the means by which almost everyone hears the good news of the gospel. You know, so this, in that sense, the Holy Spirit is restricted, but it's a self-imposed restriction. He has chosen to allow us to have the privilege of being hands and feet, if you will. And the Spirit is a spirit. He's, he's, not, he's not fleshly manifestation that, that, that allows people to, to see and to hear. It's a, it's a mind-boggling thing when you think about it. It's a humbling thing when you think about it. It's certainly a challenging thing if you stop to think about it. I mean, the implications of this are, are profound and huge, are they not? You know? It's not that the going forth of the gospel is dependent on us. The gospel is going to go forth whether we speak a word or not. You know, God has already chosen from the, before the foundation of the world those who will be saved. And yet, it is by means, it is by means, the means of the going forth of the word that comes from, from me and from you. As, as we bear witness, both from what we have seen in God's word about who Jesus is, and yes, what we have experienced. What we have seen of who Jesus is and what he has done in us and, and through us and for us. As we, as we look around and see what Jesus is doing in the lives of our, of our brothers and sisters. As we see the Holy Spirit moving. As we see transformation happening. Those are all things that we can testify, all things that we can do as we as disciples bear witness. So I, I, I guess it comes down to what we see at the beginning of the, at the, at the birth of the church. There, there are some parallels for me between what we've seen here this morning at the end of chapter 15 of the Gospel of John and what Jesus says as he begins, as he as, as his final words before he he leaves this earth. 
recorded by Luke, derivatively. <laughs> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit's witness, his testimony, the testimony that is divine, finds its, finds its manifestation, its culmination in this empowering. But you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. Again, they're, they're coupled together. The empowering of the Holy Spirit is what enables us to be witnesses. It's a spirit-empowered witness. It's, it's a personal witness. It's a, it's a global witness. It's an inclusive witness. Yes, it's a witness as we have seen in the passage that comes before and as we'll see in the passage that comes after the verses we consider this morning. It is a suffering witness. This idea of suffering is, is tied up in the word itself. The word in Greek is martyrus. Something along those lines, my, my Greek pronunciation is sometimes a little shaky. It's the, it's the word from which we get the word martyr. So inherent in this witness is the, is, the, is the expectation of suffering. It's a, it's a unified witness. And it's a witness that is promised to be effective. This is the witness of the Holy Spirit. The witness that is a divine witness and a witness that we now are enabled by his power to take into the world. Again, profound implications of this. Because we as a church are, are commissioned. We are given the mission of taking, taking this word to the world. And that means taking the word to the person that sits next to you in a cubicle at work or the person that lives across the street from you in your house. And it means the people in lands that have never been visited with the gospel. He left this for us. We, we, we quote the Great Commission every Sunday. We are to go and make disciples. And the way we do that is by by bearing witness, taking the witness that we have received, the witness that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and taking it to a world that needs to hear it, whether that's across the streets or on the other side of the world. So again, the implications for us are profound. We need to be on mission doing that. God brings people across our paths, I believe, probably every day, you know? And again, it might be a person we've known for a long time. It may be a person we've never met before. But we have opportunities day by day by day to bear witness. And we, and we have opportunities to support those who go to places where we cannot be to bear witness. But I, I would submit to you that just as it is the only message that the Holy Spirit was sent to give. When he was sent to bear witness, he was sent to, sent to bear witness about Christ. It is, only, it is our only message as well. It's the only message of hope for the world. As we look around the world and see all the turmoil that is going on, we see 
the, the lostness, the, the depravity, the, the baseness to which our world seems to be, into which our world seems to be falling, there is only one message of hope. There's only one witness that has an answer for all of those things, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we, as we go out into this world around us, wherever God has placed us, it seems to me that at the forefront of our consciousness, at the top of our minds, before we have conversations about anything else, maybe, just maybe, we should be saying a word about Jesus. Maybe bearing witness about him. I leave you with that thought. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we know that without the Holy Spirit, we are helpless and hopeless. Uh, given, uh, left to ourselves, we um, are unable to do what you've called us to do. And we, we won't abide in you, absent the Holy Spirit. We won't love one another as you have loved us, uh, apart from the Holy Spirit. We won't be able in, to endure under persecution. In fact, we will probably do things to avoid persecution, absent the Holy Spirit. We, we won't bear witness, absent the Holy Spirit. I praise you that the Holy Spirit is not absent. He is here. He is here with us. He is here in us. And because of that glorious truth, we are empowered to do all of these things. To abide, to love, to bear up under persecution, and yes, to bear witness about Jesus. Strengthen the, the, the power, uh, may the power of the Spirit be more and more appropriated in us day by day as we become more and more like Jesus. Lord, give us boldness to speak your truth, to bear witness to both what we know about Jesus from the Word and what we know about Jesus from what he has done for us. Lord, use us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.